Welcome to the Hot Topics podcast, the place where the global thinkers, innovators, and disruptors share their thought leadership. We'll delve into the world of tech entrepreneurs, investors, and corporate executives in a series of interviews to ensure you're up to date with the fast-moving tech ecosystem. This is the business of innovation. When Tim Berners-Lee invented the internet nearly 26 years ago, he thought he'd created an egalitarian tool to share information between connected computers that would help shape the world. He envisioned a better, more connected planet, and largely that's what the internet has done. Unquestionably, our lives have become easier, and it's given an entire generation access to the world's knowledge right at their fingertips. Something Berners-Lee didn't envision, however, was the internet being used for less favourable purposes. It has become a double-edged sword. Take the deep web, for example. It houses some of the darkest corners of the web. Pedophiles, drugs, and hitmen all run rife. But Ben Hookway and his team at Lancaster University wanted to develop something to catch these online criminals, the elusive cyber criminals that government agencies wanted to desperately track down. The answer to their problem was language analysis. By analysing huge amounts of language, Hookway is able to work with government agencies to help flag up suspicious behaviour. Relative Insight's wildly successful software is now being applied to marketing and advertising. Because when it comes to advertising, it's not what you say, but how you say it. I sat down with Ben Hookway, CEO of Relative Insight, to discuss how language analysis is set to transform the marketing industry. We're joined here today by Ben Hookway, the CEO of Relative Insight. Lovely to have you. Thank you very much. How's it going? A little bit tired. I was at an election special event last night, so I'm still kind of getting over that, but I'm, I'm rallying. Happy with the result, or...? Um, I think it was a very interesting night, uh, not least for pollsters. Ah. Pollsters versus reality, from a professional <laughs> point of view, I think that's going to be, for me, that's the biggest story. Yeah. Okay. okay, well, I guess my first question is, could you give us a little insight into your career, kind of how you came to be where you are now? Sure. Um, so, <clears throat> I uh, started off working for Fujitsu Services, big IT systems integrator, and um, I pretty quickly after starting at Fujitsu ended up in the United States. So I, I was in America from '96 to 2002, and I did four companies: acquisitions, startups. Lived in DC, lived in San Francisco, all through the dot-com boom, which I'd have to explain to, to some of the younger people. So this was before the days of cloud and before the days of open source and so on and so on. So. Um, early stages of the web it was absolutely fantastic I mean I, <laughs> I had a brilliant time I adored adored living in the US um, but all great things come to an end so we, we came home uh, my wife and I in 2002 and then shortly after that I founded with two friends a mobile phone user interface software company uh, so this is the days before just before the iPhone when all phones looked awful to use and we made software which um, made them look fantastic uh, and after we bootstrapped that company for about 18 months um, whilst selling into South Korea uh, which is another set of stories in it on its own because we sold to Samsung and LG and people like that um, and then we pulled in some venture capital investment for that business and then about 18 months later we uh, got an acquisition offer um, so we had the option to do another bigger round of funding or take the money and do the acquisition. And we took the acquisition. So it was a reasonable acquisition. And we sold out to a company called Mentor Graphics. We're based in Portland in Oregon. 
I then ran uh, consumer electronics business development for Mentor Graphics. They make embedded software which goes inside of the guts of a lot of mobile phones. So I spent 100 flights a year and an awful lot of time in China, Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, places like that. Sounds very hectic. Yeah, that was pretty wild. Um, you know, small kids. Um, posher hotels than doing a startup, um, but nowhere near as much fun somehow. You know, it's better to be slumming it with your friends on a on a journey and on a... Maybe I'm just romanticizing it now. I don't know. I probably am. Um, but, uh, you know, you ended up staying in the Hyatt and having posher flights and things like this. But, you know, you're not doing it with such a, a kind of... A cause and a, and a vision. Um, anyway, did uh, sort of two three years of that, um, and then sort of finished that off. And the, the venture capital company, which had backed the first company, um, asked me to go and help out at another company. So I left Mentor to be another startup again. Now we missed exiting that one. Then I swore I'd never do another startup. Uh, and then I sort of consulted to venture capital firms and doing various other things for about 18 months. And then uh, Relative Insight came along and I couldn't say no. So Relative Insight I've been doing for a couple of years now. Okay, so could you give us a little insight into what, what it is that Relative Insight does? Sure. So um, <clears throat> we do advanced language analytics. So uh, we take digital text. So that means forums or review sites or social media. Um, or emails or you know anything that's digital um, and we do pretty advanced language analytics on it and we can tell a lot of very subtle but quite important things about people by the way they type and the way they express themselves online um, the company started uh, the, the genesis of relative insight was is actually out of lancaster university and lancaster university has one of the leading cyber security departments in the uk is quite, quite closely affiliated with the, with the government and so on. And this project actually started as a, a security project, and we do do law enforcement and security work. And the, we do a lot in child protection originally. So we can do things like, for example, we can t in an online forum, we can tell the difference between a 13-year-old girl and a 30-year-old man doing a very, very sophisticated impression of a 13-year-old girl. Right. So, uh, and so sadly, this you know this does happen, and so this um, we can do this kind of thing because we're extremely good at comparing two sets of language and understanding what's subtly but significantly different between the two language sets. So we continue to do uh, law enforcement work on child protection and, and other areas, um, but a, about a year ago. Um, we committed a, a lot more resources into the marketing and advertising world. So uh, marketing is based on imagery and language. And it became apparent to us through a, a, a few kind of coincidental meetings with ad agencies that a lot of ad agencies and marketers were kind of using word clouds and stuff like this, which... It's not, it's not great. No, it's not great. And... Yeah. Um, but it was a kind of limited understanding of, of treating language as, as a data source. Um, so it kind of dawned on us that this really could be um, quite a big thing for the industry. And so we've been going at it really in a completely committed way for about 12 months. And we, Sorry, the, the marketing? The marketing, marketing side of the business, yeah. Um, 
uh, we'd seeded a couple of smaller deals just before that, and you know we've picked up you know business. We work with Microsoft Mobile, Sachi and Sachi, uh, Ogilvy, uh, WPP. Wow, so, yeah. so 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 some huge, huge players. Are. Yeah, we've worked on some uh, really big brands. We've worked on Toyota, and we've worked on big Procter and Gamble brands. And nice. yeah, well, can you give us any kind of examples of how you've helped them or? Yeah, so uh, it's it's still one of these things where our success is a secret, our failures are public, I guess. But um, we, we okay, so we specialize in two things really. There's two types of language when it comes to marketing. It's, there's what the brand says and how they say it, uh, and it's also the other side of that coin is, of course, what consumers say and how consumers speak. Now, when I say language here, I mean things like not only what people talk about but the style of language they tend to use so are they expressive are they emotive are they colloquial are they formal um, do they use certain phrases which are for, uh, which could be a signal that they're part of a certain community right so, so it's more than just words it's, it's contextual stuff too it's we're completely driven by context so um, and the ability to compare language drives that context so we can compare on multiple dimensions I guess so I'll give you some examples so um, we somehow we've done a lot of work on cosmetics so um, one of these exercises showed that if you look at the review language in the United States of cosmetics and you compare the language style of reviewers by age you reveal some interesting things so for example um, if you're 25 and younger and a woman in America, you're far more likely to say you wear makeup. If you're 40, 45 and older, you're far more likely to say you apply right. makeup. <clears throat> now, this could be nothing or it could be everything because this is typical of an unknown significant language trait. So the brands, you wouldn't even know to look for this stuff. But if you're a cosmetic brand, and you're trying to sell to 20-somethings by saying apply our product every day for wonderful results, you're getting it really wrong without even knowing it. Okay. okay. So that's kind of a cross-age group. I suppose it's those first kind of slight nuances that can really make a difference when you're trying to sell a product. Yeah, absolutely, because um, the thing about language is that just as in the, you know, the real world, if you mirror someone's language style or someone's communication style, they are far more likely to engage with you. And that's um, exactly true in the in the virtual world as well. So, if you digitally communicate with a consumer in a style which is more like their usual communication style, they're more likely to um, get a connection with you. Mm. Um, the trick is understanding what these important trigger trigger points are in language. So <clears throat> that was an example across age. Um, there's other kind of classics. There's a relevant one at the moment. So we also have done quite a lot of work with Microsoft Mobile, the, or Nokia as well. I saw, yeah, I saw an article on that. Yeah. So um, the kind of things which spring to mind there, that one of the most interesting ones was uh, the launch of the Lumia 1020, which was a device with extremely good camera in it. And part of the marketing campaign was targeted at uh, digital camera enthusiasts. So if you've got a DSLR... Mm -hmm. And so the marketing campaign went along the lines of, you know, take awesome pictures with the Lumia 1020. Well, if you do the right comparison and analysis on the DSLR forums and review sites, 
you will see that that group of people tend not to say they take pictures. What they tend to say is they shoot images. So if you're a cool photographer, if you're into this topic, you shoot images, you don't take pictures. So uh, Nokia, as it was then, or Microsoft Mobile now, saying take pictures to uh, this group of people is actually desperately uncool without knowing it. Um, and it, it's, it's relevant now because if um, anyone who walks around London, for example, can't help but see the Apple uh, poster campaign at the moment where uh, they're displaying photographs of people, of, of the photos people have taken with iPhone. And underneath, the, I don't know if you've noticed, but underneath it says shot on with iPhone, iPhone 6. 6. Yeah. It doesn't say taken with iPhone 6. It says shot with iPhone. And that's a very deliberate wording. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, cool. So clearly, I mean, clearly, you know, the technology you produce is kind of groundbreaking in this particular field. I mean, is there anything else out there like it? Um, not that we've come across. Um, certainly, we've, you know, with all the customers we've worked with, no one's ever... Um, said that well yeah someone else does the same thing um people use maybe different techniques to try and get to the same insights um so um for example focus groups you know the old-fashioned way of doing this would be to get a focus group ask people what they think they tell you you write it down and you try and extrapolate that up um whereas what we do is kind of is more like software reach focus groups because we go we, people already express themselves in a forum um, and they, they say what they think in a forum. And if you can just measure that and capture it, it's probably more accurate in some ways for certain things than a focus group. Um, so no, from a tech, but from a technical point of view, no, we've not come across anyone doing similar things. Interesting. Yeah. But then, you know, every early stage company says that. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so I suppose, does this kind of pose a real opportunity for kind of global brands uh, in the sense that, you know, I'd imagine, say you have a big brand like Coca-Cola. Yeah. They have, they have, they outsource creative work to 50, 60 different agencies around the world. Mm. But they want to make sure that their message is in tune across all. Mm. Would Relative Insight be able to ensure that that is the case? Yeah, so um, there's a couple of elements to that. Um, one is continuity of message from the brand. Yeah. Um, we've done several bits of work around making sure that a brand's messaging is consistent and they are actually saying what they think they are saying the thing about language is that it drifts very very easily um, so if you imagine let's like say it's coca-cola right there's a, a top line messaging exercise in that company there is brand guidelines there is language and so on and so on and that's at a senior level well by the time that language guidelines um, are disseminated through three hierarchies of management and through four different agencies, through eight different media channels, the potential for that to be completely off message is, is really high. And quite often what we'll do is a comparison between what the brand thinks it's saying and what it's actually saying. And it's, it's all over the map. It's crazy. Um, so we, we get used to kind of ensure continuity. I think at a macro level, there's a growing demand for data-driven decisions um, in marketing. And the sort of top-line creative element of that, we play a really large part in informing that. So the where versus apply um, example I gave earlier on is a really good example of 
making the difference in the top line creative process, but having data to back that up. I think the, the days of, there's always, a, there's always a place for great ads and great creativity, but that's not um, at all um, in conflict with good data. Um, data and creativity are, are just part of the same spectrum. So I think what's going to happen at, at a macro level is that um, all brands are going to be more data-driven. Um, there's going to be more bridging of the gap between data and creativity. Um, and that's going to happen at a, a top-line marketing level um, and all the way down to a kind of programmatic ad targeting level as well. And, you know, we give brands the capability to say the right thing at the right time in the right way to the right person. Um, so it opens up a, um, a massive number of creative options for them. So what's what's the uh, kind of reception been like? You know, a bit, bit in the UK or, you know, has it been uh, better received in the UK than it has in Asia or, you know? Um, well, we haven't gone to Asia with it, um, so I can't speak to that. We've, uh, half our revenue comes from New York and half comes from the UK. Um, on the whole, the US is keener to sort of try new things uh, and go to market. I think the um, the UK is getting more and more innovative. I think that the whole industry has to be a bit more data literate, personally. Mm -hmm. um, there's big variance in sort of data literacy and, and context, particularly context-driven stuff. Um, I think the, for us, over the next two or three years, you know, I, I, I'd say that in three years' time, the centre of gravity of our business will be in, in America, almost for sure, because that's where the biggest brands are. That's where um, the big ad agencies are. That's where the money is. That's where the revenue is, and ultimately, that's where the exit's going to be. So what you, you imagine the next few years kind of head towards the US? Yeah, so we, we go quite a lot already. Um, in, in the States, most of the business is driven through our ad agency partners, so people like Havas, um, Saatchi and Saatchi, um, people like this, and so... Yeah, I suppose big big global brand, big global sort of media agencies. Yeah, exactly, and so that makes it feasible, so it's effectively a channel uh, mm. sale, so that makes it more feasible to kind of commute to New York once every five weeks, maintain mm. the relationships, talk with their clients, um, and drive business that way. Um, I think over time though we'll we'll end up doing more and more direct business mm. with brands, um, both from a kind of a marketing perspective, but also a market research perspective. So um, I'd anticipate, in fact, which is what we're planning at the minute, is you know a, a physical presence in, in probably New York um, initially, uh, and then an expansion out from there. Cool. Can you see any kind of uh, challenges in terms of scaling the business across uh, to the US? Yeah, loads. I think. Um, <coughs> So having sort of, you know, sold software for enterprise software for six years in the States, I'm kind of fully aware of the, what's the word, hyperbole of, of selling in the US. Um, it's a very uh, seductive place to go. Um, there's a large amount of grass is greener to the elements. Um, it's the biggest risks are the first hires you make. You know, I'm, I've run sales teams in the U.S. and sales guys in the U.S. are very good at selling themselves. Uh, it's extremely difficult to make that first hire and get it right and make it right for your business because it's, it's critical, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I think you know when you, you know, I'm certainly of the view that when you're growing a business from the the founding team, the first five hires you make, say, are pivotal because 
they end up defining the whole culture of the business from that point onwards. Mm. So finding the right person who's available, you know, at a price you can afford and fits with the team and so on and so on uh, is very, very tough. Um, and personally, I think that it's it's a big, big risk to kind of gamble on hiring someone in the States and expect them to get on with it. So um, I would expect that certainly some of the, the management team of Relative Insight are spending a lot, lot more time in, in North America. Nice, okay. Yeah. Well, okay, one final question because we're, we're running out of time. Um, you know, where, where do you kind of situate, uh, well, what, how, how do you feel about kind of big data uh, and kind of the, the, the future of it and what it poses for uh, businesses? Oh, gosh. And a big, big question. Uh, big not question, much. not much time. Yeah. I think. Um, Just very succinctly. <laughs> okay, succinctly, I think big data is neither good nor bad. It just is here. Mm-hmm. Um, the trick is going to be context. Mm-hmm. It's how people effectively put context around big data is going to be the critical, um, the, the critical measure of whether it's going to be useful. And it's better to have modest data with great context than mm-hmm. big data with no. Okay. Cool. Well, thank you very much for coming. Hey, it's lovely to meet you. You too. Cheers. Pleasure. You've been listening to the Hot Topics podcast. For more content, including live events and videos, visit hottopics.ht.